Hello and welcome to another episode of Humans and Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite magic personalities. I am your host, James Sue, and today there is not going to be a guest on the other side. That's right, today I am conducting the Humans and Magic AMA, or Ask Me Anything. This is the first time I'm doing it, feeling a little bit nervous, so let's just see what happens. I'm going to edit the episode as minimally as possible. I'm going to answer the questions that you, dear listener, have submitted, and let's have some fun and see what happens. All right, let's start off with the podcast-centric questions. Alora Molat asks, what was your inspiration for the podcast? So my inspiration from the podcast basically originated after I wrote my first book called Magic the Addiction. It was an autobiography of sorts. I tried to use the book to talk about my history with magic. And after having completed writing that book and releasing it, I realized, man, I've written so much about myself. I think it's really time to turn the tables and figure out what other people are doing and figure out their lives as opposed to being very me-centric. It was also around that time that I had encouragement from two very important people in my life. One of them was Julian Knob. Julian is a content creator in his own right. He and I became friends well before I wrote the book, Magic the Addiction. And he was just very encouraging. I remember talking to Julian one day saying, hey, I want to do a podcast. What do you think? And Julian basically just said, yeah, go, go for it. You know, just if you have a dream, if you have a goal, just go for it. See what happens. So Julian has always been a great friend, and he gave me the the push I needed to kind of get started. The other encouragement was from someone that I didn't know very well at the time, and I definitely know him a lot better now, Louis Scott Vargas, or LSV. After I wrote my first book, I was basically just cold emailing or cold pitching people, trying to get them to read the book and write a blurb about it. And I thought, why not give it a shot? Why not ask LSV to read the book. He doesn't know me at all, but maybe he'll be kind enough to do so. Well, to my great surprise, Luis actually took the time to read the entire book and wrote a wonderful blurb about Magic the Addiction. So I was essentially on cloud nine and it wasn't as direct inspiration for the podcast, but Luis basically gave me the mental encouragement to feel like, okay, I might actually have a future as a content creator. I should probably keep this up somehow. And so Luis and Julian were big, big pushes. Of course, before even having that push, I thought about how do I do the podcast and what kind of content do I want to create for the podcast? I thought I wanted to do something that was unique and evergreen. I wanted something that was not topical. It wasn't magic strategy. It was something that people had not heard before, at least in the world of magic. And the podcast content could be non-topical. So you could go back and listen to an episode from a year ago, two years ago, and would still be relevant because it's talking about the guest's life. Another big reason for doing the podcast was to practice personal speaking. I wanted the practice of cutting out all of my crappy verbal fillers. Things like, uh, you know... So just all kinds of things that naturally come up when you speak. And 
I'm not going to say that I have it perfectly. I have it down perfectly. You have probably heard quite a few of these verbal fillers already, but it was a way to practice public speaking in a weird way. And the last thing was just doing the podcast like Humans of Magic was playing to my strengths because I talked to the guests about personal topics over strategy content. This is something that's really more in my wheelhouse because I'm trying to be honest with myself. I'm not a top tier strategist. I love certain magic formats and I'll get into that in a little bit later in this Q&A or AMA. But what I really enjoy doing is just sitting down with somebody, talking to them and trying to figure out what makes them tick because the thesis of the podcast is everyone has an interesting story. Yeah, so these are basically some of the factors that went into why I did the podcast, how I did the podcast, and encouragement from people to give me the initial push that I needed. Okay, next question is from Pleasant Kenobi. What made you choose a podcast over other forms of content? Well, there were a few things that went into this calculation. The first thing I thought about was what does the world want? What does the magic world actually want? I've always done writing. I've written lots of articles and blogs in the past. As I said earlier, I wrote an entire book about magic. But I really think the world has shifted over to other methods of consumption. So for me, it was quite simple. I, I basically narrowed it down to if I want to create something that people will actually consume, it's got to be either audio or video. The next thing is, what is logistically simple for me? Because I had a full-time job when I started the podcast three years ago. I still have a full-time job running Cardboard Live as a startup, startup founder. And so I thought a podcast would be fairly easy to learn, to edit, to schedule interviews with other people remotely because I'm based in China. And I also wanted to make something that I didn't feel was needed to be on this YouTube treadmill. Because if you're a YouTube content creator, you basically have to be cranking out videos several times a week because they have certain algorithms. I didn't want to be doing that. I, I know there's lots of people who are extremely awesome at doing cranking out videos and they're really, really gifted, including Pleasant Kenobi who asked the question. But, you know, for me, I just didn't want to be in that kind of produce, produce, produce mode. I wanted to be able to create things at my leisure. And the last thing I thought about was what are my strengths, right? I was able to fairly easily learn audio editing, but video skill, video editing would take a little bit more time to learn. And I thought, if I want to do this for fun, if I want to do it as a passion project, then I have to be able to enjoy it. Last but not least, I myself really love consuming or listening to podcasts. There are certain podcasts like Tim Ferriss's podcast or interview podcasts that I really, really enjoy. And so I thought maybe I could do my own version of that. So those are kind of the reasons why I chose a podcast over other forms of content. Okay, next set of questions. There's actually a whole bunch of questions from Pat Uglo. Pat Uglo is one of the co-hosts of Leaving a Legacy, which is one of the best magic podcasts for the legacy format. So the first question Pat asks me is, what are the parameters to choose my guests? This is a kind of a very nuanced question, so I'll try to think about how I want to answer this. Essentially, it's a mix of the guest's magic background, personal experience, 
and their public speaking experience. So let me break that down. One is magic background. The guest has to have some notable accomplishment with magic or be known for their magic stuff, whatever it is. It could be results, it could be cosplay, it could be a content creation career, something. The other thing is personal experience. So I often find, or I have found over the years doing this podcast, that if you are just, if your life is just about magic, then it's not really going to be a very interesting interview because I want to dig into your personal story, your struggles, your challenges, and I want you to open up about things. So if you're only going to be on the show to talk about magic, chances are it's not going to be super engaging. And the third criteria was public speaking experience. That just basically means that I would ideally prefer that the guests be have had some experience doing podcasts or being a content creator or speaking publicly. Because if I interview someone who has never done a podcast before or has never spoken to someone in this kind of format, chances are it's going to be a little bit harder. It's not impossible. I've interviewed people that have not quite been in the public spotlight so much. And in fact, that's maybe part of the reason why they're interesting. But it's generally speaking, I would say that you have to have a mix of being known for magic in some way, being interesting outside of magic, and being in front of the public spotlight somehow so that you're you're comfortable speaking to somebody on the phone. There's also an X factor, which is I choose guests if they scratch my own curiosity itch. So if there's something that I really want to ask them and or I see their work and I'm really fascinated and I really want to figure them out or get inside their mind, then I'm doing it for myself. That really makes it worthwhile. There's also other considerations like referrals. For example, if I interview somebody, they might say, hey, James, here's another person, a friend of mine who I think would be great. Word of mouth is always really, really good. And the last consideration is, to be super honest, their level of magic fame. So I'm always thinking about, I can do the best interview in the world, and I only have limited channels to promote on my end. If the guest is fairly well known, then they can also help promote using their socials. So that becomes important as well. Kind of a long-winded answer, but in a nutshell, these are the parameters that I use to choose my guests. Okay, next question from Pat. Who's my favorite guest? And Pat (laughs) added a little note here. He says, don't say all of them. It's what a coward does. Well, Pat, as I say, cowards can't block warriors, and I want to be able to block warriors. So here goes. I'm going to try to break down my three-year podcasting history to my favorite guests. And I thought about this a little bit. Unfortunately, in the end, I still have to go with two names. I still have to provide more than one name. The first person is Brian Gottlieb. Brian is the co-host of Arena Decklist podcast. And the reason why I enjoy talking to Brian so much is because he met all the criteria. He has a great magic background. He has great, fascinating personal experience. And he's also an extremely good speaker. So when I did the interview with him, I did two interviews. The first one, we basically, or I basically reached a flow state of conversation. You can call it flow state, you can call it being in the zone. But basically I lost all track of, all sense of time. And we just kept going and going and going and every topic felt so natural. 
segueing into the next. And after I finished recording my initial episode with Brian, I realized that we all almost didn't talk about magic at all. And so to me, that was sort of the epitome of what uh, a good interview was. We just kind of explored, it went into different places. It wasn't forced. It was really, really natural. I think that episode I did the least amount of editing of all my episodes. So Brian was amazing. And that was one of my favorite guests. The other favorite guest, and I'll just say this is tied with Brian, is Luis or LSV. That was a really meaningful one for me because I've been trying to get Luis on the cast for years. After he endorsed my book, Magic the Addiction, I kept asking him over the years and he kept turning me down for whatever reasons. This year in 2019, I finally managed to break through. I finally managed to get him on the cast and Luis is just wonderful. Again, someone who is an amazing public speaker. We went all over the place. We talked about some of the personal challenges, some of the personal learnings, his journeys, and just some really fun stories. So I would say that it's a tie for favorite guests. It's got to be either Brian or Luis. Next question. Do you ever want to really press a guest and decide not to? Well, I would say yes, but I also have learned over the years that outlining and preparation is 80% of the podcast. So what I always tell my guests is I'm going to prepare a question outline in cooperation with you before we start recording. So my guests always take a look at the, they always have a chance to look at the questions list and they have a chance to figure out what they want to say or what's going to be asked. And I always tell my guests too to get them to be very, very comfortable that they have the right to final cut. So it doesn't matter what you talk about in the podcast. That's what I tell them. You will always be able to review the final MP3 and have the opportunity to cut things out that you regret saying or you felt could have represented you in a better light. And so I do this because it gives my guests the feeling of security. Security is very important because whenever I ask someone to come on the show, most of them know that they will be asked the hard questions. And it's not really hard questions like I'm going to put them on the spot. I'm going to throw them a curveball. But they're going to be asked sometimes to talk about things they've never talked about in public. I usually press the guest to the max because I already know what questions I want to ask. And sometimes I will probe and probe and probe. And it's very rare that once we get into the comfort zone, that they will just shut down and not answer something. So it's also something that I sort of learned in my career working as a, a tech professional or someone working in tech. When you interview people, it, it could be a conversation or it could be interviewing for a job, interviewing them for a job. You never want to leave questions on the table. If you're really curious about something, just go ahead and ask. So that's what I do. I always want to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And in the end, if they're not comfortable or they want to cut it out, that's totally fine. But I will have not done my job as an interviewer if I don't satisfy my own curiosity. Next question. Any regrets? Well, I don't really think of regrets when doing a show like this because I, I enjoy it and I learn from it. So I like to actually reframe this as learnings. It's not really regrets, but it's what are things I could do better going forward. I would say that 
earlier on in the show, I did not spend as much time outlining the questions with my guests. And I think some of the interviews, especially earlier on, really suffered. And that's really my own shortfalls as an interviewer. Another thing in the beginning was just that I was not used to interviewing people on certain topics or just interviewing people in general for magic. And so I did a lot of annoying things. Like I would just repeat what they said again, and it really wasn't necessary. It really killed the flow. And so that was something that I conscientiously try to cut down on. And the other thing was not making the episodes really listenable. Even though I'm trying to do the podcast for satisfying my own curiosity and because I enjoy interacting with the guests, at the end of the day, this is something that other people are going to be listening to. You're not really two people in a room talking just by yourselves. And so I really started to think about over time how to present the podcast, how to outline it so that it's more interesting, so that the topics are something that people would care about or be fascinated by. I'm not going to say that I'm perfect in this. I'm always working on it. But I think what I'm trying to do more and more is put myself in the shoes of the listener. What do they actually want? It goes back to that, that answer. What does the world want? That's really important. I think a lot of people do podcasts just for the sake of doing a podcast. And to me, that's no longer enough. I want the podcast to be listenable. I want people to talk about it. I want people to enjoy it, to get something out of it. It's not just a vanity exercise for myself. And so those are kind of the learnings that I, that I have. Okay, last question from Pat. He had a lot of questions, but I think they were all pretty, pretty good. So I kept them all in. What is your wish list for future guests? I would say that most of the guests that I had wanted to get on Humans of Magic, I have had. You know, I'm not very shy about reaching out to people or trying to network, trying to get them to do a podcast. For LSV, I asked them for three years. I, I don't know how many times I asked them. So I don't really think there are too many guests that I really, really want to interview that I haven't. I think nowadays it just kind of comes up organically or they did something recently that I'm really curious about. So I just want to go and talk to them. But okay, I'll just go ahead and say it. There's one person that I would love to talk to because a lot of things have happened to this person or around this person this year. I would say Reed Duke. But if I were to interview Reed Duke, I would want it to be completely honest. I would need him to open up about some of the controversies he's been involved in. I want the good, bad, the ugly. You know, I want a very truthful Reed Duke. And I'm not actually assuming that he's not truthful. I'm just saying that I've not had a chance to interact with him. So when the time comes for me to reach out, that's definitely someone that I would like to talk to. Next question from Connor O'Donnell. When doing research for a show, what is your process like? Do you search for particular information or look for broad characteristics? So there's two ways to answer the question. Research for a show can be for guest selection and after the guest is selected. In the previous question or the previous answers, I already went into how I select my guests. So I'm going to focus now on what happens in terms of research after the guest is selected. What I usually do is I ask the guests directly. I basically just ask them, what are the top two or three topics that you have that you're super passionate about talking about? You're super passionate about talking with me about on the podcast. And I find this generally works pretty well because 
A, it doesn't put them on the spot when we start recording. And B, I want them to be excited and engaged and talking about the things that's on their mind. And so once I have that from them, it becomes fairly easy to break it down and do the relevant research. You know, Google a couple of videos or articles or think about how to approach those questions into sub-questions. And so that's that's basically a bit about my process. And of course, there's also always the baseline, which is the family background, the history. I always want to basically know as much as possible from them at a young age, even before they play magic. For me, knowing who they are as people is very important. So we always try to do something along those lines. So that's basically what goes into the research. I, I wouldn't say it's super strict, but there is kind of a process that I've developed. Actually, this answers the next question too from Andrew Ellenbogen. So Andrew's question is, by what process do you decide the list of topics? So just to repeat it, it's asking them to come up with the topics. What do they want to talk about? And I'll build on this a little bit. When I did the interview with Andrew and when I do the interview with some guests, I will actually, as part of my research, ask them to introduce me to some of their friends. If I have time, if they have the time and they give me the time, I will talk to their friends and get information and insights about the guests that I would not normally know about. I, I, find this, I found this to be pretty effective and the baseline stuff is going to be family history. That's, that's a given. But sometimes I find out interesting facts, quirks, mannerisms about the guests that are not going to come up if I just go ahead and search for that on Google. So that is something that has been pretty effective in limited doses. Next question from Julian Knob. <laughs> Julian, my, my good friend, but he asked a few questions. I feel like answering them. Do you have content creators in the greater esports universe you look up to in, in terms of consuming content? And who are your content creating heroes? So I'll break it down. I, I think Magic, you can safely say it's an eSport now. So I'll break it down to Magic and non-Magic. When it comes to Magic, there are certain podcasts that I just love. So one of them is Arena Deckless with uh, Brian Gottlieb and Jerry Thompson. Amazing podcast. They've done some amazing work and they do consistent work. I love it. Consistency-wise, I think Limited Resources by Marshall Sutcliffe and Louis Scott Vargas is also up there. They manage to do an episode every week that's super high quality. And because of my personal connection to Marshall and Louis, I am a big fan. In the world of video, I would say it's Brian, a.k.a. The Professor, Tolarian Community College. It's just an amazing YouTube channel. It's, there's just all kinds of great content. The, the stuff he has done over the years consistently, extremely high quality. I know he does it full time. And so he puts a lot of himself into it. I love the channel. And I think it's one of the best things around for Magic. He's also very objective. He tells it like it is. He's not beholden to any, anybody. He's very truthful in his reviews. Oh, his product reviews. I really like that. All right, there's so many to list, but I would also say the general category of magic streamers. So th these are people like Alias V, Detsy, Voxy. I'm sorry if I didn't list you here. There's too many to list. You don't, basically they've shown that you don't have to be the best at magic. You just have to be able to entertain. And that means a great deal. I would also say Riley Knight, 
<laughs> Riley Knight, who I had on one of my episodes. I think he is the renaissance man of magic. He's good at magic, entertaining, commentary. He does a history podcast. He just does bloody everything really well at a high level and super humorous. So I definitely think Riley Knight is one of the people that I look up to. Okay, non-magic. I would say Tim Ferriss. The Tim Ferriss podcast, it's definitely up there in terms of the Golden Grail podcast. He is one of the best interviews around. I've been very influenced by him. I'm just going to be straight up and just say that. There's also Terry Gross. So Terry Gross of Fresh Air interview master has done amazing interviews with famous people for decades. Mark Marin, Mark Marin's WTF podcast. He's an amazing interviewer. He makes everything very personal. Just a great guy. And on YouTube, there's an excellent interviewer from Canada. I'm not sure a lot of people may not have heard of him, but Nardwar, the human serviette, his interviews are just fascinating. He just manages to find the most interesting facts about people and just really gets people to open up. It's not easy to do that with celebrities. They get asked the same questions all the time, but he manages to do it. What are the most memorable lessons you learned about content creations? This is also a question from Julian. What are the most memorable memorable lessons I learned? I would say probably the biggest one is it's not about you, right? It's not about you, the content creator. It's about your audience. When you create something, whether it's a podcast or video or a strategy article, think about how you want the audience to receive it. Even though the podcast, the world of podcasts is a niche format, even though I am in a niche format where I'm interviewing magic people about non-magic stuff, I still think about the audience a great deal. I want to make something listenable. I want something that people will be able to consume and not churn off after five seconds. So I think that is probably the most memorable lesson for me is that I cannot just be creating things in a vacuum for myself. I have to think about the audience, what people may potentially like. The other thing that I learned about content creation, I actually learned this from talking to people like Marshall Sutcliffe, who is a master, the host of LR, Limited Resources. Marshall told me the world is surprisingly fair. By that, I mean, if something doesn't work for you in terms of landing your content, getting people to respond, that actually just means you have to work harder. You have to think about how you go back to the drawing board. It's very easy to to think, I'm brilliant. I'm so smart. It's just the world doesn't understand me. Well, even if that is the case, which I don't think it is 99.9% of the time, you still want to find an audience. And if you put in good work, if you consistently put out high quality work, the world is going to pick up on it. It's going to take time because there's a lot of content out there, especially for magic, but you will find traction as long as you keep plugging away. That's something that Marshall told me that really struck, struck out and really resonated with me, I should say. There's another lesson I have, which is really listen. Not just listen to the podcast guests without interrupting them, but really listen critically to feedback. There's some feedback out there that is given in bad faith, but there's also a lot of feedback that is actually constructive. So as a content creator, be prepared to listen. Okay, next question is from Savantir, Storm Conduit. What is one piece of advice that you would give to aspiring content creators? 
The one piece of advice I would give to aspiring content creators is make it sustainable. Figure out a process in which you will not be burned out after producing too many episodes, too many episodes too frequently, etc. You have to figure out a way to be in it for the long haul. You have to have patience and you have to be willing to win the race as the turtle instead of as the hare. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And another way to make it sustainable is to really believe in your work. You have to really believe in what you're doing. Don't go chasing trends or fads or techniques. Just be yourself, be authentic, and really believe in what you do. The last part of making it sustainable is confidence in yourself. And I don't think it's possible to, for me to tell anybody, just, just be confident. I think confidence has to be developed. Confidence comes from believing your work, putting out the work, getting good feedback, or if you're not getting fee good feedback, adjust until you do, and that will help you develop confidence. Eric Virgo asks, what is your vision for the future of the podcast? It's a great question. There's many ways that Humans of Magic can go in the future. One of the things that I've thought about doing, because I am a big fan of certain topics in magic, for example, I'm a big fan of the legacy format, so I want to get into the history of how that format started and how it developed. I was thinking I could perhaps in the future work on these oral histories. It would be kind of fun. You just basically sit a whole bunch of people down, put microphones in front of them, and let them talk. So then in that sense, the podcast becomes more of a audio documentary, an oral history. I've always wanted to do something like that, but logistically, it's much more challenging much more time consuming, but it is in my back burner of things I would like to do in the future. Another thing that I have thought about a lot is more live interviews. A lot of the interviews for Humans of Magic, nearly all of them are recorded ahead of time. They are edited. I give the guests final edit and it goes out after post-production. I'm thinking it would be a lot of fun as a challenge to myself to actually do or conduct more live interviews. It forces me to actually not use verbal fillers, not say, you know, uh, uh, um, whatever those verbal fillers are. I, don't, I, I, I wouldn't be able to cut them out. And it allows the guests to be more spontaneous. And that's also something that I would love to do. But logistically speaking, it's more challenging because I'm in China. And so I wouldn't be able to do this remotely. Other than that, I don't really have any super large vision for the future of the podcast that I have not already fulfilled. I really believe in the the idea of if you want to do something worthwhile, do it now. Don't think about, I'm going to do it three years from now, a year from now. Just go ahead and do it. You can start. Be intentional and just start something. Next question from Peter Mysos. What tech do you use to record the podcast? Mics, recording devices, mixer, audio platforms, etc. I love to hear it all in the step-by-step -step process you take. Okay, I'll give the list, but I'll start off by saying, keep it simple. Especially when you're starting to do a podcast, do not, do not, do not over-focus on gear. For every second you're obsessing over technical details, you're not thinking about how to make your podcast content better. You're not thinking about how to cut down on verbal fillers, how to hook in the audience, etc. Having said that, my gear is fairly straightforward. 
Right now I'm using the Blue Yeti microphone, which I think is pretty good value for the quality that you get of the recording. And I also use something called the Ars Technica ATR2100. It's a portable microphone. It comes with a stand. I, I carried it around with me when I am traveling and the Blue Yeti is kind of hard to carry around. So that's all I have. I don't have anything fancier than the Blue Yeti. The Ars Technica ATR2100 is probably under $100 on Amazon. And the Blue Yeti, you can probably find a used one for around $100. You might be able to find a new one for $150. It's not super expensive, and a lot of streamers and podcasters use it. I highly recommend it. It's really good. It also has different modes, so you can record bi-directionally if you're sitting across from somebody. So I, I think it's really good. For the actual interview itself, I use Skype and Skype call recorder. And it's just super simple. You do a Skype call with somebody. The Skype call recorder records both sides because a lot of the times the guest is not super technical. And so I just want to be able to record both sides. And it's it's really easy to use. Skype call recorder, I forgot how much it is. It's under 50 bucks. It's a lifetime license. Skype is not the best software in the world, but it does the job. And for editing, I just use Audacity, which is free. I just downloaded Audacity and went through a few YouTube tutorials, and that's all I have. So again, to summarize, it's very simple. I'm not using top-of-the-line gear. I think it's good enough for now. I'm pretty happy with my setup, and I think keeping it simple is generally a good principle for life as well as podcasting. Okay, here's a variation of best interview. Neil aka Falcon Guy 5 on Twitter asks, which interview was the most fun to do? This is also a hard one, and it's actually different from my favorite interview. And I would say that the most fun interview I did was with Pleasant Kenobi. Pleasant Kenobi, aka Vince. I, I was just flying by the seat of my pants, to be honest, when I was interviewing him. He's just so full of life. He's very outspoken. I felt like I was just barely trying to keep up with him. He's very humorous. And we also went deep into many, many topics that I don't think he actually shared publicly all that much in the past. I thought that was really fun because I basically just try to keep up with him. And I laughed, I, I cried, and I learned a lot of stuff. So I think Pleasant Kenobi is one that, from recent memory, I really enjoyed in terms of fun factor. Okay, let's get to the second category, which is less podcast stuff and more life stuff. Kendra Smith asks, why are you so awesome? Well, Kendra, I'm afraid I can't answer that. I don't see myself as awesome and I see myself as flawed like any, everyone else. I know that your joke was, uh, your question was a bit of a joke, just tongue in cheek, but I thought it would be just good to, to mention this. It's a good reminder to people that what you see about people on social or online is just what they want you to see. We only see what we want and people only present the best versions of themselves. So I am a deeply flawed human being like everyone else. And I don't consider myself awesome on most days. I struggle with a lot of things, whether it's career, life or otherwise. It's just a lot of things that we don't know about each other. And just, just want to keep that out as a reminder. So you know, everybody's awesome, but at the same time, everybody's flawed. Next question from Steve McGilvery. I'd like to hear a bit about your family history and what your upbringing was like. I always find that fascinating when I listen to the show. 
Okay, so I was born in Taiwan. Our family immigrated to Canada when I was very, very young. So I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, strictly middle class. And basically, I had a younger brother. We played magic. Very regular upbringing. I went to school in Vancouver, Canada, studied computer science, had a career in tech, and I still do to this day because I'm building tech for Cardboard Live. And that's kind of me in a nutshell. There's actually a lot more, I guess. There's a lot more to everybody. If you want, really want to get more, and I don't really, and it's really because I, I don't want to make this a one hour answer that just bores everybody. You can always find out more if you. Read my first book, Magic the Addiction. It's basically my past history with a very magic centric focus. Rick Longo asks, I want to know about your life trajectory because it seems pretty interesting and unique. When and why did you first come to Canada? When and why did you return to Asia? Okay, this one is a little bit easier to answer. Moved to Canada when I was seven, lived in Vancouver, Canada for almost all my life. And in the past eight years, I've been in China. And I initially moved to China because of a job opportunity. Job opportunity doing product management for a multinational company that happened to have a good role in Beijing, in Beijing, China. And that's basically why I moved here. And I've always been thinking that I want to challenge myself in various ways. And I always felt very, very. Sheltered and comfortable living in Vancouver, Canada. And so I started to challenge myself more in terms of career roles. I didn't want to just stick in the same job for 10 years, 15 years, like I saw some of my friends do. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it just wasn't for me. And China had a lot of interesting opportunities, also because I'm bilingual, I'm fluent in English as well as Mandarin. I felt like there were a lot of ways that I could leverage my skill set in China. And so that's what I did. And it's been really good in China. I met my wife here. I feel very grateful, very blessed to have had a lot of interesting opportunities and growth opportunities. And so I've decided to stay in China for the time being. That's basically my life trajectory in a nutshell. Okay, next question is another one from Pleasant Kenobi. I just broke it down to different categories. How does your time in China affect your ability to engage with or consume magic content from coverage to general videos and articles? Well, when it comes to general stuff, so things that happen daily on magic, things that happen on Twitter, it's not too bad. There might be a bit of a lag time, but chances are I find out about it within 24 hours. I'm addicted to Twitter and social, and so. I generally don't have too much issue with that. There's also a lot of content from North American streamers, for example, that are night owls. And so they're actually streaming when it's daytime in China. So it's not a huge deal. When it comes to work related stuff, so for Cardboard Live, when we have live coverage for magic events and we have to be online or I want to be online to make sure things are going smoothly, well, that generally means my, my sleep takes a hit. When an MC Mythic Championship is happening on the weekend, I generally just basically have to stay up and try to recover on sleep later. It's not the funnest thing in the world, but I care too much about making the events run successfully and smoothly to, to assume that things are going to be fine. So I, I, I generally stay up for that. So that's, that's basically it. Next question from Vince is, of all your achievements, what is your proudest? So... 
I would break it down to professional achievement and personal achievement. For personal achievement, I would say that it's it's kind of a tie. Writing my first book, because I thought that was such a monumental thing before I did it, just to have the discipline to do that. I'm really proud of the fact that I did it, even though the book was very flawed. And when I read or I try to read it t- today, I'm kind of embarrassed by some of the sections. But writing my first book, I'm very proud of that. It, it's between that and getting married. Getting married, one of the biggest milestones of my life, I would definitely say that that is something that I'm extremely proud of. And not just the wedding day, but being mentally ready for that and maintaining the marriage, all that kind of stuff. It's really, <laughs> maybe I'm maybe I'm overstating it, but it's really, really hard to have a good stable relationship for anybody. And so I think that's something that I'm really proud of is getting married and staying married. In terms of professional achievement, I would say my proudest achievement is seeing Carbore Live get adopted by the biggest magic tournaments in the world. That is just awesome. Okay, next one is from Kevin. What would 20-year-old James think if he saw you now? Would he be surprised? I think he would probably be surprised in terms of certain aspects, but I would like to think that 20-year-old James was also self-aware enough to figure out that there were things that he didn't know and there were things that he needed to work on. Because I really think that every year of your life or even every day, there's something that you could be learning, something that you could be getting incrementally better, compounded returns and all that. So I think if 20-year-old James saw me now, he wouldn't be fully surprised. I don't think 20-year-old James knew exactly what he wanted. And I don't know, even know for sure exactly what all my goals are today or you know what all my goals are tomorrow. But I think, it would, I think he would be pretty satisfied with how things turned out. Okay, Ian McEwen of the Dead Format Podcast. So Ian runs the Dead Format Podcast with his co-host Tom, and it's an amazing legacy, weekly legacy podcast. So Ian asks, what are your thoughts on Andrew Yang? Okay, I wasn't expecting the AMA to be political at all, but it is an ask me anything, so I guess I should probably answer. Andrew Yang, I've had a chance to listen to some of his appearances and I read his book, The War on Normal People. He has some interesting ideas and he is an intriguing presidential candidate. I don't really have any skin in the game because I'm not American. I just basically follow certain events like the US election, like the rest of the world. I think Andrew Yang is a smart guy, obviously. He is outlining a policy for how America can truly change. I would say that some of his policies or his platform is flawed, just like any, anyone else's. But I'm I'm rooting for him. I hope he, he, he does well. As I'm recording this, this is December 2019, and he's already getting a chance to get to the next stage of debates. And so, yeah, I hope he does. I uh, hope he kicks ass. I hope he wins over more of America. I think there's still a lot of people in America that don't know who he is other than the internet. And I think America is so big that he really needs to increase his popularity significantly. So I'm not really sure that he has what it takes to become the president of the United States. But whatever happens, I think what he says and what he does 
is a good learning for him. It will set him up for his future political career. So it can only be a win-win. So those are my thoughts on Andrew Yang. Okay, general magic questions. Now we're getting to general magic topics. The channel Fireball Twitter account asks, what kind of magic do you most enjoy? Well, I enjoy most magic formats, but I would say the two that I enjoy most are limited and limited would just be draft and sealed deck, either one. I've really enjoyed playing limited, especially this year when I started doing it for real. I've I've done some drafts in the past, but not seriously. And because of Arena, I've been doing a lot of a lot more limited and I've really enjoyed it. The other type of magic, and that's my favorite type of magic, is the legacy format. It's just amazing. You're playing with old powerful cards. It's very interactive. It's not like what people say that it's a turn one or turn two format. I've met a lot of great friends and connections through it. People playing Legacy are just the most chill, awesome people in Magic. And so those are the two formats I enjoy. Next question is from R. That's pretty cool. Just one letter, R. What do you think about the reserve list and the barrier of entry it creates into Legacy? Any ideas on how to solve them? Well, that is also a big question. I think the reserve list is never, ever going away. And I think Wizards of the Coast has shown that it is never going to go away. There's been so many discussions and speculation on whether it can go away, legal implications. I think if I were to put myself in Wizards' shoes, there's just no point in trying to touch that with a 10-foot pole. So if I were to assume that the reserve list is just here to stay, any ideas on how to lower the barrier of entry? I would say that there's already been lots of things to lower the barrier of entry because the most costly thing for the legacy is dual lands. And because of the way that they have printed certain cards like Back to Basics and Arkham's Astrolabe, it has now become more and more viable to run a lot of basic lands in your legacy deck. And so I think it's been better and better. And I don't think the reserve list creates as big a barrier of entry into legacy as people who don't play legacy may observe. Because once you're really into the format, you make some friends, it's very easy to just borrow cards from each other and slowly build up your collection with winnings or savings. So I don't think it's a big issue. I basically am just saying, look, the reality is the reserve list is not going to go away. And we just have to deal with it. We can play magic we can play Legacy Online, which is also a great way to get lots of practice and lots of competition. And Or if you want to do paper, just find a group to borrow cards from. Lava Spike asks, Hey James, what would you tell yourself 10 years ago and 10 years into the future? Okay, this is a variation of a question because I ask my guests this a lot. It could be 5 years or 10 years. Let's just say it's 10 years because that's what Lava Spike is indicating. What would I tell myself 10 years ago? If I go back in time 10 years, I would tell James, relax. I feel like even now I'm really learning how to not be a control freak in certain aspects of my life. Sometimes I want things to be perfect. I want things to be very predictable. Well, life is not like that. And 10 10 years ago, James, which was even more anxious than I am now. So I really want to be able to tell him that. And I really hope that he can internalize that. 
What would I tell myself 10 years into the future? Okay, I got to think about this one. What would I tell myself 10 years into the future? What I'm holding on to right now is that things are generally pretty good with my personal life and career and also with the podcast. I just want to be able to remember that when times are good, don't get too excited. And when times are bad, don't get too down. Just basically think of life as a marathon. Don't overdo it. Don't get too upset if things don't go my way. It has to do with this, the need for control thing that I just talked about. So that's what I would tell James 10 years in the future. Just, again, relax. Just think good things and bad things will happen. That's life. And just, just roll with the punches and try to adapt. Okay, here's a question that Elliot is, ask, is asking me. Where do you see competitive magic in five years? I think competitive magic in five years is going to be entirely digital. There's a, there's a couple of reasons for that. When you play tabletop tournaments, it's really great to have the social factor, but there's so much that goes into it. There's things like judge calls and are people doing shady things, honorable things? Are they shuffling properly? Are things going to time? I think arena or something like digital magic is the future. So I really see competitive magic being being fully digital in five years. I also think that there will continue to be more and more formats created. So this year we saw Pioneer, we saw Historic on Arena. I think there will be increasingly more and more ways to play magic. And as a result, if you want to compete at the highest levels and you want to be successful, you will have to master several formats. I think over time, there will be more tournaments that cater to specific niches so that it's not just standard and modern all the time for the Mythic Championships. I think that's where magic is going. Jeff Kinsey of the Canadian Threshold Podcast. Okay, I got to stop here. Canadian Threshold Podcast and Jeff, they're from my hometown, Vancouver, Canada. Amazing podcast. I'm going to shout them out. Go check it out on SoundCloud, Canadian Threshold, amazing podcast. So Jeff asks, what is your favorite magic-related memory? I think the best magic-related memory I had was in 2011 when I went to my first Grand Prix, which was actually for the Legacy format. And the Grand Prix was in Providence, Rhode Island, and I was still living in Vancouver, Canada at the time. So... Myself and two of my really good friends, we flew to the East Coast. We did this epic road trip where I almost crashed a car because I was sleep deprived and almost killed all three of us. But that's a story for another day. And we managed to make it to the GP in one piece. But that was after visiting several landmarks. We went went by Washington, D.C., New York, and a bunch of places and had a great time. There was also a time in my life in 2011 when... I had less professional obligations and less worries. And it was just probably also to this day, the year that I played the most magic because I basically just went all in on playing magic and having fun. So that was my favorite magic related memory was the, the whole road trip leading up to playing in GP Providence, which was also known as GP Mental Misstep. That was when Mental Misstep was a legal and valid card in the legacy format. What attracts you to a deck? Oh, this is also a tough one. Over the years, I've tried to play more and more different styles of decks, whether it's aggro, mid-range, or control, or some 
or combo or some combination of the above? It's hard to say, but I would say that colors attract me to a deck. My favorite color is black. So there's something in the deck that is black. You know, if it involves cards like Dark Confidant or Thoughtseize, I will probably give the deck a try. Or Dark Ritual, which is also obviously a very good magic card. So it's not scientific. I try playing decks that I enjoy. I would say generally what doesn't attract me are decks that are way too grindy, that are just pure control decks. I always like to be the proactive aggressor. And so that might mean combo, it might mean aggro, it might mean playing something like Delver, the Delver archetype in Legacy. The last question from Jeff is, are you ever moving back to Vancouver, Canada? Jeff, I already go back to Canada quite often on family visits, and we have played Magic quite a few times. Whenever I am around, we play some Legacy together. I would have to disappoint you and others to say that I do not plan to move back to Vancouver, Canada anytime soon. I like my life in China. I like being global. I like traveling around. And I will probably move back to Vancouver, Canada when I am retired because it is good for that. But, you know, I'm content to visit Vancouver just to visit family and friends for now. Next question is from Arthur King from Shanghai. EDH, aka Commander, is one of the most popular ways to play Magic. What keeps you away from the format, and why do you think people love it so much? Wow, this is kind of a leading question. Arthur is a friend, and he knows that I don't play Commander or EDH. Okay, I will just basically summarize it here. The reason why I don't play Commander, and this might be a gross generalization, I might have not found the right playgroup, but I'll go ahead and say it. I think Commander is an extremely flawed format because it involves a lot of politics, especially when multiplayer Commander is involved, and everybody has a different sense of fun. There are some people that play Commander who are spikes that are just in it to win, and I'm very spiky, so if I play Commander, I'll be spiky. There are some people that want to be Timmies and Johnnies and just want to have fun with their combinations. The problem is that when people play a format with all different goals in mind, then it essentially goes into the lowest common denominator. Then the spiky person will always win. Or the spiky person will always win, and the players won't like that, and so they always gang up on him. So it becomes this sort of vicious cycle where if I want to be competitive and I, and I want to play commander while being competitive, it just doesn't work. And everybody's sense of fun is different. So somebody might say that, you know, a combo that I can do by turn five is perfectly fair. Another person might say, no, it should be a turn three combo is totally fine then. Another person might say a turn one combo is fine then. So where does one draw the line? I think when people are playing a multiplayer format and they all have different ideas on what fun and winning mean, then it becomes very problematic. So for these reasons, I think Commander is a flawed format. And please, if someone out there can change my mind or maybe I'll get into the right play group, I'm willing to change my mind. I'm willing to be open-minded. But right now, that's just how I feel. Okay, next question is a big one. I'm going to take a sip from my beer before I try to answer. This is a big one. This is my dear friend Patrick Ugolo once again. How do you feel about the state of magic Twitter? 
It's a big question. So I will say that Twitter has been, personally speaking, very beneficial for me. In terms of Cardboard Live, in terms of Humans of Magic, it's really helped me get the message out there. Twitter is amazing for amplifying signals, amplifying news. If things catch on, they really start to catch on. People start talking about it. I also think Twitter is amazing in general, not just Magic Twitter, but Twitter is amazing for being able to talk to people that I don't know. I've had so many wonderful relationships that have become deep friendships as a result of Twitter. I also use Twitter a lot to reach out to Humans of Magic potential guests, and it's, it's a huge blessing from that. Having said that, Magic Twitter, or Twitter in general, can sometimes feel like drinking from a fire hose. I personally find it very difficult to navigate, and I've certainly had my ups and downs. It's like a fire hose because it's just very difficult to have a nuanced discussion. I think people are always thinking about, and I'm guilty of this as well, put, representing themselves in the best light possible. And so there are popular opinions, and then there are unpopular opinions. If you have an unpopular opinion, chances are you will just get shouted down. It's really hard. I still don't think I've fully figured out how to use Twitter properly. I had my ups and downs, had my learnings, and so I have very mixed feelings about Twitter. I think there are some power users of Twitter who really get it and use it masterfully, and they are very, very engaging, very funny, and very, very interesting to read. For example, Emma Handy, Rachel Agnes, aka Baytog, they're just masters. They 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 do tweets and Twitter so well. I'm not anywhere there. I think Twitter is mostly a way to reaffirm what you already believe. So it's really I'm not really learning anything from Twitter, and I don't think that's what it's for. It's really just a way to amplify things that you already believe in, that you already want to see, and it's a way for you to get news. Uh, spreading the news and also getting news. And so I think that is really good. I think Twitter has become many things to many people. And unfortunately, I think it's become a, a game to many. So sometimes you want to have a nuanced discussion or you want to have a discussion period, but it's just really hard to make it work. Anyway, that's a lot of stuff. That's that's This is just like off the dome what I feel about Twitter I think it's overall a net positive, but I still have lots to learn. I'll continue to use it. It's helped me a lot, personally speaking, but it is very, very hard to navigate, and I'm always learning. Next question is from MTG Magic Fest. What is the difference between the magic communities in the Western and Eastern worlds, not just at the highest levels, but at the lowest levels like FNM? So I've had the privilege of playing Magic in many different places, in North America, in Europe, and now in China. Uh, Japan as well, but Japan is a little bit different. I can cover that in a bit. When I'm thinking about Eastern worlds, you know, where I'm based, China, I would say that the Magic community here is extremely warm, extremely welcoming. There are extremely smart, extremely, extremely talented players. There are some players here that I play against that just blow my mind they're just really really good big brain magic all that kind of stuff i would say that if you are ever visiting china just reach out to people like myself or some of the folks here they're very passionate very welcoming there are certain cultural and language barriers we pick up pick up on that really fast and everybody can speak english as well for 
popular magic lingo. That's the beauty of magic. It's really a universal game. So I think it's great. I think all communities that are doing magic are awesome. There are always going to be good actors and bad actors, but I think as a whole, Chinese magic is really good. The follow-up question from MTG Magic Fest is, in your experience, what preconceived notions do players have about other communities, and are they correct? I, I'm trying to think preconceived notions. I, I'm trying to think, okay, so a Canadian Magic player, what do they think about a Chinese Magic player? Or a Chinese Magic player, what do they think about a Canadian Magic player? I actually don't think there's too much that they think about, because it's human nature to just not think that much about what's happening on the other side of the, what's happening on the other side of the world. I mean, Chinese players look at North American deck lists and I'm sure vice versa, the same thing happens. I don't think there's too many preconceived notions. I think there are going to be pleasant and unpleasant people everywhere. And I think if you go into another community, just try to represent yourself in the best way possible. Be respectful of cultural and traditional differences. And that's a really long answer. I'll, I'll have to go into that at, at a future time. But just basically, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Just observe what's going on, use some common sense, and generally speaking, there's not going to be any issues. Reinhardt asks, what's the best part you would introduce to the world about the Chinese MTG community? <laughs> this is a kind of a planted question. Reinhardt and I are friends. He's a, a legacy player from Shanghai, and he's part of the Chinese MTG community. The best part, I would just say, is that people are just super welcoming. They are willing to talk to you. People like Reinhardt, if you show up and you're a foreigner, he's just going to want to find out about what you do and what you're playing and lend cards to you. There's all kinds of things about the Chinese magic community that are, that are wonderful. And so I would just say that... The Chinese magic community is very open and welcoming. That's what I would say is the best part. Next question is from Jeremy Edwards. Jeremy Edwards from Seattle. If you can recall in detail, what is your best come from behind victory in a tournament? Hmm. Okay, so Jeremy, I do know. And Jeremy is a master of the photographic memory play-by-play. -play. It's hard for me to think very specifically about come from behind victories everyone's had them if they played enough magic and it's also kind of subjective what is coming back from behind sometimes there's information that you don't know about and you're actually ahead or not that far behind but i would say that during the death right shaman era of grixis delver the best come behind victories are when i was playing the mirror matches and i would be on the draw so Deathrite Shaman, as you can probably figure out, if you're on the play, you have Deathrite Shaman, you have a huge, huge advantage. You're getting True Name Nemesis down on turn two. You have like days and all these kind of things that help you by going first. The best come from behind victories I had was during this era when I was on the draw in a mirror match and I still managed to win. That just felt so good. That was actually probably my favorite era of legacy magic, to be honest. It was just a time when... The power level of the card was good. You had Gataxian Probe and Deathrite Shaman. It was they were they were obviously very powerful busted cards, but the mirror was very skill intensive. I would say that over time I went from losing a lot of these mirror matches on the draw to winning more and more of them. And that actually gave me a lot of confidence and it gave me a lot of enjoyment. So that would be my answer to that.
Okay, let's get to the last section of the AMA. Cardboard Live questions. Yeet from Turkey asks, what was the development milestone in Cardboard Live or CBL that made you decide it is the right time to quit my daily job? So at the time I was part-time on Cardboard Live and not yet full-time, I started working on the idea with my wonderful friend and co-founder, Wilson Hunter. I was still working full-time at Microsoft. And I think what happened was just essentially Carbo Live was getting so much traction. I was thinking about it all the time. I was so excited to work on Carbo Live part-time that I knew in my heart I could not do it part-time and still do it justice. I needed to go feet first, jump feet first into the pool, into the deep pool and just see what happens. I'm also sort of operating by the idea that if you don't challenge yourself enough, you're not growing. And I basically thought to myself, well, I'm leaving my corporate job for the world of startups. If this doesn't work out, I will have learned a lot of stuff and I can always go back to a corporate job as a backup plan. And so as long as I had enough savings and aptitude for risk at that time, which I had, which I did, then I was going to go ahead and do it. And I was working with somebody who I really respected, like Wilson Hunter, and that made all the difference. He was somebody who I felt very compatible with in terms of my values and how, how we saw things. And so he was the perfect partner. And so, you know, it's basically as close to a no-brainer as, as I could get in my mind. Question number two, any opportunities missed in the past which would make CBL in a better place today? So... I actually feel really grateful already for what Cardboard Live has managed to achieve in as of December 2019. We've been used by the biggest magic tournaments in terms of coverage software. We are powering some of the biggest arena streams, you know, people like Alias V, Voxy, and Death Sea streaming on, on, on Twitch. I would say that we've actually been really fortunate already in terms of market timing and market forces. So I don't really have... Any huge thoughts about missed opportunities? We are still continuing to go pursue other games and other verticals. So, you know, but those are things that we, we are actively trying to do. And they're not entirely within our control. It's a two-sided discussion. And so we continue to do that. And I don't really have any big regrets. I, I feel very happy with the way things are today. The next question from Yeet is, how does it feel to be making a living out of your hobby. I mean, it feels wonderful. That's all I can say. There are some days that are better than others. When you're when you're building your own business and you're working with people and there are a lot of things outside of your control, it can be tough sometimes, but what really keeps me grounded is knowing that I'm building value for myself and I'm doing something to help the magic community. And that means everything. So the intersection of my passion and doing this as a full-time job is great. I don't think it's for everybody. I don't think I would do this for every single thing, but there are also other things that make this great, such as working with Wilson on a daily basis. And so I I love it. I mean, right now, I, I love it. it. It's part of the mindset of challenging yourself and putting things in perspective. There are certain things that still annoy me with Cardboard Live in terms of our progress, in terms of what being able to do, because I'm very impatient with our, our traction. I wish we could always do more. 
But at the same time, putting it in perspective, I think we're doing okay. So it feels great to be making a living out of this for now. Next question is from Jonathan Zhang. Now that it, Cardboard Live has proliferated a lot, okay, I really like that term, proliferate. It's a magic term. Now that Cardboard Live has been proliferated a lot, what is your vision for it going forward? So from day one, the vision for Cardboard Live has been we want to allow content creators to tell their stories to their fans in the best way possible. It just so happens that right now we selected as our first vertical Magic the Gathering. And we selected as our first beachhead or platform, Twitch. Over time, we're going to allow content creators. And when I say content creators, content creators really for gaming to tell their stories in the best way possible. We're going to be experimenting with different mediums, different platforms, different ways for people to do that, be able to help them monetize better, be able to make their streams even more interactive, tell richer stories. That's what the technology allows today. And we're going to continue to push that envelope. That's our vision since day one, and we are nowhere near done. So we're definitely going to be working hard on that. Next question is from Chang. How does Cardboard Live decide and manage its team members and who to sponsor? This is a good question. So I don't believe we have, when I say we, it's Wilson and myself. We, dis, we don't have an entirely super scientific method for sponsorship. We discuss everything together, and we're still learning a lot about the world of sponsorships and esports. And there's a lot of people out there with more experience than we have, and we always try to be open and, and learn. But I think what we look for in terms of people to sponsor, first and foremost, is how well do they live our values or the CBL values? By that, I mean... Do they have integrity? Are they fierce competitors? Do they have a unique voice as content creators? Are they fans of the CBL product? We don't want anyone to, to, to be sponsored by us that doesn't feel like they believe in this CBL mission. So I think the first litmus test is how well do they live the values and how well are they bought into CBL? And from that point on, it's really a discussion. We try to figure out what sponsorship terms are agreeable to them. We try to figure out how much magic they're playing. We try to work out the numbers to try and make it work. And it's kind of different for every spon for every sponsor player, every situation. So there really is no one size fits all. But really, the, the way I would answer this is Wilson and I just talk together about who we should sponsor. And we sponsor people based on who we personally like. If are, Do they represent things that we personally enjoy? For example, Limited or Legacy. I mean, Wilson and I both really love that. So we have some sponsor players that are that are doing that. Do we do we want to work with people that we have a huge ton of respect for? So Gab Nassib, he's a Hall of Famer, all-timer, and his stream is awesome. So we started working together with him. And there's lots of people that we're continuing to talk to that fit that description. And so it's always changing, ever-shifting, and it's fun. So that's how I would answer the question. Okay, next question from John is, other than Twitch, what other platforms are CBL looking for cooperating with? Are there platforms in China or otherwise that you, are, you guys are considering? So I'll break it down to China and outside China. For China, the big determining factor of whether we integrate with some of these Chinese 
streaming platforms like Douyu or Huya or Nico Nico or Bilibili is the popularity of MTG itself. Magic Online still hasn't had the huge traction that it's had elsewhere in the world. And Hasbro's making, well, I should say Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast are making steps to empower that or to make that happen. When that happens in a big way, I think then we'll definitely start looking at these platforms because when there's an audience, then we're, then we're definitely going to be part of leading the charge. Outside China, I would say that we're definitely looking to expand. Our vision is to be a platform ourselves. So we're looking to expand, partnering with other platforms, trying to do something on our own. Our vision is definitely to support multiple platforms because there is no one size fits all. Twitch is good for certain things, certain types of gaming content, but there's other things out there different for content creators with different needs. So we want to be open and flexible to that. Okay, I think that is basically it for the AMA. I had a lot of fun doing it, and I hope you enjoy listening. If you've listened this far, thank you. I know this is kind of rambly, but I wanted to try and make this recording as non edited as possible and i wish everybody happy holidays this is going to be the last episode of the year and if you have more questions please let me know we can do a part two take care be well and we'll see you on the other side in 2020Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans and Magic. To get more information about the show and to join the mailing list, please visit humansandmagic.com. And don't forget, the Humans and Magic book is now available on Amazon for both paperback and Kindle. We'll see you next time.